Welcome to David and David on Real Estate. Join us as we explore the ins and outs of the real estate market. Good morning and welcome to the David and David on Real Estate podcast. And today is podcast number 78. Very excited to have everybody with us. Always uh, good to be with you, David. So it's just me and you today. But somehow we always find lots to talk about. We do. There's never a shortage of topics. And uh, uh, David, we were both away for uh, for the last uh, couple of days. Uh, you went down south and I went up north snowmobiling. So yeah, um, how was your trip? Uh, it was it was fun. It was you know nice to be away. I was, I was down in Florida. I hadn't been there uh, for three years, I guess. And, uh, and got to see a different area of Florida than I usually go to. So it, it, it was fun just to see something different. And, uh, we stayed with some friends and met some other people, you know, attended a, a surprise birthday party for a friend of ours down there. Uh, so, so that was, uh, nice. And that was, it was a good break. And, uh, and meantime, you're traveling all over Northern Ontario. Yeah, yeah, I went on an impromptu uh, snowmobile trail uh, trip, and um, man, what an adventure. We started in uh, Sunridge, which is just north of Muskoka, and then we went to Mattawa and Petawa, which is north of Algonquin Park, uh, right by the Quebec uh, border. We had some fabulous snow conditions, but as we kept going further up north, um, there was a, a, a warm spell down south, and the trails actually got closed where we started. So we actually had to loop back around instead of going all the way around Algonquin Park and had to go back to where we started. And of course, we couldn't get there because the trails were were all closed down. So we had to get trailered back to our car at the very end. So uh, quite the adventure, but we, we still put on like 800 kilometers in the snowmobile. We had a great time, great company. So um, I tell everybody, you know, winter is long in Canada. Right. And you have to have something to really look forward to. So whether it's skiing or cross country skiing or snowshoeing or ice skating, but, you know, it's nice to have a winter hobby and a winter sport and snowmobiling is something that, uh, um, you know, my family and I really look forward to and, and it keeps us together and it's just a great way to spend some time. Well, that's a lot of mileage because you're traveling at, at what speed most of the time on a snowmobile? So the average speed that we do is between 60 and 80 kilometers. So, I mean, yeah. you know, after eight hours of snowmobiling, you know, you do put in quite a bit of miles on the machines. Yeah. All you need is snow. And it's amazing that in February, in the middle of February, that you know, there was a lack of snow up there. Like I was up there over the, the Christmas holidays and in a 48 hour period, we, the snow grew to accumulate to over the top of the railing on our deck and it was piled on top of the railing about three feet high and it was over over a 48 hour period we had so much snow it was unbelievable never seen anything like it and uh and now in february like there's no snow you gotta you gotta look for snow to uh, to go snowmobiling yeah, I was actually just on the phone with the uh, president of the um, Lake Scugog Snowmobile Association because there's a trail just north of the cottage that has been closed the, the whole year and it's actually not showing in the snowmobiling map. And of course, that's a concern. I have a six-year-old that I want to you know start riding with and uh, for us to get to our first trail, now we have to go in the lake and, and go 
you know, a couple of kilometers on the lake uh, to, to meet up with the trail system. And, uh, you know, it's just not safe at certain parts of the year, right? So I wanted to understand why the trail was taken off the map system. And of course, there's lots of politics, you know, there's farmers involved, there's landowners involved. And I found out what happened here is that the MTO has a project planned like way down the line. They can't even tell us when the project is coming, but they've rescinded the rights to cross the highway uh, up north from here. So they basically said, nope, you know, we have this proposal to expand the bridge and, you know, we're doing all these modifications. So we're revoking the the the, the, the authority to cross the highway for the snowmobiles. So now they have to close down a whole trail system. Um, and, and you know, now if, if you want to connect with the trails, you have to go on the lake and you have to connect at a completely different point, which of course is not uh, safe anymore. So you know, we take some some of the uh, trail systems that we have in Ontario, which are world class. You know, we take them for granted. But in, in speaking to the club president and 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 understanding the logistics behind it, it just goes to show you how much work gets put into maintaining, um, to to maintaining the relationships with the landowners, with the government agencies that are responsible for granting uh, access and uh, overseeing everything. The OPP, the Ministry of Transportation. Uh, the different road authorities, the different municipalities. It was just uh, having this conversation with this club president and just un understanding the complexities involved with, you know, what happened to that trail system just north of here um, is, is, is quite mind-boggling. So to everybody that puts in all the hard work to make sure our trail systems in Ontario are, 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 are the world-class amenities that they are, you know, a, a big thank you for, for all your hard work. Well, I love the way you you managed to work in uh, you know real estate concepts and 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 rights of ways and easements into this conversation about snowmobiling, but that's what it is. Like you don't have the right to cross the MTO unless they grant you a right of way to go across it, and if you do otherwise, you're trespassing. So even when they're you know trying to create these long continuous trails. They've got to look because I'm sure there's other places along that trail where you're crossing someone's private lands and they've made arrangements with them to get access to it. And, and sometimes there's costs involved to maintain it or to contribute towards the maintenance and things like that. So these things don't happen by accident. And there's a, there's a lot of thought and effort and, and, and legal principles that get involved in these things, you know, just to, to create, you know, great uh, snowmobile trails because you got to connect somewhere right it's not always going to be government lands there's certain places where you've got to cross private property and there's certain places where you, you've got a trail but it's got, but there's one a government agency that owns it or controls it versus another one and they have conflicting issues all of a sudden because now they're you know they want to do a widening of the road and they cut it off probably way prematurely way prematurely like you know uh the consensus was that this isn't even on the books and any sort of it just somebody had an idea that they're going to do this at some point in the future and yeah. right away you know they're they're revoking access revoking permissions which uh you know i i said to the club president look i have a six-year-old you know i don't want to take him on the lake at, at certain points to think connect to trails like that's dangerous so that's right. going to you know, impede me from, 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 you know, sharing this activity that I love with my son at certain points of the year where I just don't feel like it's safe uh, going out there. Right. So yeah. uh, everybody. Has usually to by mid February, the lakes are are pretty frozen and it's, and it's safe, but you know, but it's been, we've had a pretty mild stretch of weather, even, 
even further north of the GTA. And uh, you got to be careful on these lakes. Like you really got to check it out and make sure that it's solid before you're going to bring a machine on it and, and ride it or even, yeah. even walk it. Yeah. And we always wait until the locals go on the lake. And, and this year was very unorthodox. We had almost no ice huts on Lake Scugog. The locals were staying off the lake the entire season. Even when the lake was frozen over, we did not see any locals out there. And, you know, that, that really tells you how unstable the lake conditions are compared to all the other years. Usually there's a really big uh, winter community out there. People put ice heights, we connect them. They put a skating ring. They have outdoor fire pits at nighttime. They're out there having drinks. Uh, kids are ice skating that, you know, other kids are playing hockey. Like it's a real sense of community out here on the lake. And that has not happened at all this year. The locals are off yeah. the ice. We're not seeing any ice huts out there. Like very weird, but I mean, you know, I, I think it has to do with global warming, right? And, and, and the weather conditions out there. Well, it, it, it might, it's, it, it's, you know, we're going through a real warm stretch, which was preceded by an extremely cold week, yeah. right? Where it was like bitter cold, too cold to get out, you know, to participate in these things. And on, a lot of these communities on these lakes have these great winter festivals at different weeks. And usually they schedule them in February, like early February, because it's safer to get on the lake. You know, I know even you were talking about Gravenhurst, the Muskoka Wharf area has one all the time. And, you know, and there's curling and there's a like a three on three ice hockey tournament and there's all kinds of stuff that get on the lake, but you, you need the right conditions. So it's one of the great things, though, about about where we live and the access to these lakes, whether they're the bigger lakes or the smaller lakes and the communities that are up there, you know, all the fishing huts and, and all that stuff that goes on. It's uh, it, 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 you got to embrace our winters. There's a lot of good things. That, that come out of our winters. Yeah. But David, in your trip down south, I mean, you know, you and I spoke briefly be, before we jumped on the uh, on the podcast, but you were mentioning some really cool real estate principles down there as well in terms of land ownership and in terms of historical land ownership. So, you know, maybe you can share some uh, some of the yeah. experience down south. Yeah, we, we ended up in the um, in the Palm Beach area which I'm not very familiar with. I'd been down there maybe 20 years ago for a while. And uh, so it was sort of nice to be in that area. And we, we decided to take a little boat tour around, you know, on a pontoon boat for an hour and a half around Palm Beach Island, which is where all the, the rich and famous, you know, hang out and, and they shop on Worth Avenue. And that's where there's a famous hotel, The Breakers, which we went one night for, for cocktails, which is just it's, unbelievably gorgeous property spectacular and been there forever and, and restored and refurnished and uh and we drove by mar-a-lago and you know it's because it's it's right around the corner but from the ocean side you know this little boat tour like the 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 guy taking us to the tour was just pointing out like house after house it's all the it's it's the history of the u.s like all the families that have been there and made money you know, some of them 200 years ago, and some of them are, were famous doctors, and some are famous businessmen and, and owners of different, uh, you know, major corporations, and some recent successes. And then there's the, the movie star element and some athletes that are there and, and things like that. But it's one property after another, this is owned by so and so this is owned by so and so. So it's really quite fascinating uh, to see and, and on the history of it. So um, you know, and, and it's, you know, I always look at things from a real estate point of view and the values there are just, just ridiculous. 
you know, like some of the homes are, are pretty spectacular, but you could see some spectacular cottages on Lake Simcoe, not very far out of Toronto, like spectacular estate type cottages. And then those places could be worth, you know, 10, 12, you know, 15 million, but that same type of property, you put it on Palm beach and it's $40 million us, you know, for, for the similar property, like the values are just unbelievable. So, it, you know, it, it was, it was fascinating to, to see, you know, what goes on there and everything. So it's um, interesting area. That's for sure. And a lot of these houses, David, I mean, like they've been passed on from generation to generation to generation and, you know, yep. these families do whatever it can, they can to keep them because they yep. know that, you know, it's a status symbol and that the value keeps going up. And, you know, of course the rich, the more money you have, the less you are affected by what the market's doing by, by other external factors, right? Like you create your own um, luck and you maintain your own wealth and whether inflation goes up or down or market changes you know you have less of an impact because you're more uh you're less tied to the market and what the market is doing in a lot of those cases yeah you know in, in the meantime we were staying at a at a relatively small condo project on a on another island not far from there and and talking to a bunch of the you know got to meet some of the owners and people that were staying there and everything and and their condo issues are the same as everybody's condo issues they're just getting ready for their annual meeting and they're discussing, you know, how much money is in the reserve fund because now the, for the, you know, the the Florida government never required a reserve fund like we have in Canada and under our condominium system, like in Ontario. Uh, but because of that uh, that condo collapsed a couple of years ago, or it was, was about a year and a half ago, or whenever that was, um, in South Florida now they're changing their laws are to require a reserve fund, and they and they've given them a deadline of when they've got to to build this reserve fund up. Uh, to cover certain costs and to check their buildings and stuff. So they're, some of these buildings are struggling to meet that. So that was their discussion because they, they got part way, they raised about half the money, but it's really hard on them to, to do a special assessment to cover the whole thing. So they're applying now to see if they can get an extension of that. So you get into to conversations like that. And then, but one thing they've got different there, you know, you, I don't care what condo project you go to in, in Florida, you're going to have, it's a Seinfeld episode on, on condominiums, if you remember that Seinfeld episode uh, talking about Jerry's parents living in condos and all the the fighting that went on in the board and stuff like that, it's I think they all do it. So it's pretty comical in some ways because they're fighting over do we fix the elevator, do we, re do we replace the elevator, but we don't use the elevator. We're on the ground floor, so why do I have to contribute to the elevator? Like it's like it's mind boggling some of the conversations you get into. But they also get into it at a different level because even though there's condo politics. When you're down there, they also, it, it just gets into federal politics and there's divides between the Republicans and the Democrats, even on stuff about whether to, to fix the elevator, because they just get into that somehow. And they just say, you know, well, they want, you know, they want to, you know, replace the, spend money to replace the elevator, you know, that's the Democrats, but the Republicans want to just fix the elevator and spend less money. Like it's, like, it's just, you know, I, I just shake my head and, and just nod and listen to them. And it's, um, it was, it was interesting. Well, you know, it's, it's fun to kind of uh, highlight the differences and, 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 and get into 
how different uh, regions approach uh, issues that you know you're so familiar with. Because I mean, you deal with condo issues, and and when uh, at the time of purchase and sale, all the time. Right. So and, and we had an episode on this, David, a while back when we kind of talked and highlighted some of those differences between the United States and Canada and why right. our system uh, works as well as it does. But, you know, when you're talking about building up a reserve fund, time is your biggest leverage. Like you do it over time. Right. right. Like some buildings are 20, 30, 40 years old. That's building up the reserve funds for 40 years. And yes, you're dipping in and you know, you're doing assessments and you're budgeting forecasting, but time is your biggest leverage. Right. right. When, and, you, sorry. But under what, our law, as soon as a brand new condo is constructed, you start contributing to build the reserve fund, like everything's brand what? new. Nothing has to be replaced. Everything's under warranty. Whatever's got to be fixed up, it's covered, you know, by either the builder or, or Terry on like just covered. But, but day one, our law requires you start building the reserve fund. So you're not going to dip into it maybe for five years, 10 years, 15 years, depending on what it is, but you're starting day one. So it's exactly what you're saying. You have time to build it up. You're doing it. It's, it, it's not as painful. But here, all of a sudden, because they didn't have that requirement, they said, okay, and everybody has to do it. And you got two years to build a reserve fund. So, like, you know, some buildings can, and some buildings, where are we going to get all this money to, to, to meet that? So, and here in this little building, in, in spite of their best efforts, it's, you know, they've got about half of it raised, and they want to apply now to say, look, we got half, but we don't really have any major expenditures coming up. We've already recently put in all our hurricane windows and all our hurricane doors already spent money on that. So we don't really have big expenditures coming up other than this elevator issue. So they want to show the government they've got enough for now and they'll continue, but can you give us more time? And they may not get that. So it puts a lot of pressure on them. It, it, I, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. And, you know, as the building is older, there's there's more to maintain. There's less time for, for that buffer zone where they can just uh, accumulate and, and make sure that they have sufficient uh, reserves. And, uh, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on all the unit owners. You yeah. know, and, uh, uh, it, it's just uh, an ugly situation. But at some point, you have to go down this path because you have to create these rules that protect unit owners uh, clearly because of what happened in the one condominium complex, right? And it's always yeah. the one bad apple that ruins it for everybody. But I mean, these rules, I mean, I think uh, they work really well as as we've seen in our condo markets here in, here in Canada. Yeah. And, and you know what it's like, you know, you're sitting by the pool, or you're sitting by the beach and meeting these people and they go, oh, you're a real estate lawyer. So let me ask you this. What do you think about this? And, and they all want you to weigh in from their point of view on, on this thing. So it's, so you get a taste of what it's like to be, you know, you, you go traveling with someone and you find out they're a doctor and it's, oh, you're a doctor here. I got a boo-boo over here. Would you take a look at it and give me your, your free advice on, uh, so you, so you go through some of that, but I found it, the conversation is interesting because everybody comes from a different viewpoint. Some of them live there. Some people are snowbirds and some people are renters and it, it's, everybody's got a completely different viewpoint, but you know, that's why, you know, you, ha you organize a condominium and you have a vote because it's the only way to do it. And depends who gets elected as to the to the board of directors, that's going to swing what you're going to do. And it's no different here. So I always encourage people, you know, get involved. You know, if you own it, you have an interest in your condo, get involved, attend the meeting, see what's going on. 
you know, voice an opinion, whether you want to get involved in becoming an officer or director is another thing, but you can have a lot of influence on an officer and director, you know, other ways too, and, and influence the vote. So, um, you know, don't just throw your hands up and say, oh, they're doing this, they're doing that, and, you know, and be a critic. No, you have an opportunity, you have a vote. So, so use that. Yeah. If, if I was the people uh, down South and, and I had the opportunity to speak to you just because, you know, we have the system that they're aspiring to have. It'd be very important for me to hear your point of view of, of how the Canadian system works mm-hmm. and, you know, why it works so well and what are the mechanisms in place that we have that protect the, the average consumer that, uh, you know, they're aspiring to put into their, their system. So I, I'd want to hear from you, like how the Canadian system works, why it works well, why it doesn't work well, and, you know, what, what they should be looking forward to down the line as they start implementing, you know, more of a system uh, close to what we have here in Canada in terms of protecting them. Yeah. And, and, and that's sort of where the conversations went a, a lot of times. So um, you know, I'm not giving legal advice to anybody. But say, are you going to send them an invoice at the I end? Of the unfortunately, no, I can't bill for my, for my time. Uh, unless CRA is asking, yes, I was there purely on business. Uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> But, but David, a lot of changes, uh, or, or maybe I should say uh, not a lot of changes, but, you know, the courts have cons- uh, reinforced a lot of the principles that uh, we know uh, to be true in, in our markets recently. And it takes a long time for things to go through court systems. You know, um, there's probably a couple of years of, of delay, but it's a couple of recent uh, um, cases that we wanted to discuss today. Um, and the first one is that an Ontario court upholds a summary judgment in the seller's favor after buyers fail to close. And we're seeing more and more of these deals uh, or these contracts not closing and there being issues at closing. So I think it's really important that we kind of jump into this conversation and talk yeah. about uh, what we're seeing out there. Yeah. And so that's the first one you're talking about. So this is a court of appeal decision. Okay. Uh, saying that um, like what happened was there was first you go and you have a you normally would have a trial in front of a judge okay but in this case there was a summary judgment which means they didn't go to a full-blown trial the judge found that wasn't even necessary he heard enough on on the basic principle basic facts they didn't say we need a full trial to go through the whole thing and made a decision and then it was appealed to the court of appeal and the court of appeal said no no the judge was right this is something that could have you know was was fairly dealt with in a summary fashion without going to a full trial. And this was um, a, a new construction property. You know, some uh, some purchaser buys from a, a builder for house to be constructed for a, a million and a half dollars and put down uh, initial deposits, 20,000, and then up to 70,000 in, in total. And they couldn't close. Okay, it comes up for closing and the buyer couldn't close. So they negotiated a couple extensions and you know and those things are negotiated usually lawyer to lawyer in terms of the extension and um there was additional deposits paid in order to get those extensions the builders think fine we'll give you more time but not for free we want you to pay some additional twenty thousand dollars deposits and then after the end of the section they still couldn't close so they tried to negotiate for a vendor take back mortgage so obviously buyer couldn't get financing 
and tried everything, you know, over and over, couldn't get it. And then said, okay, builder, I still want the property. So why don't you take back a mortgage? Uh, builder said, no, we're not prepared to do that. And eventually builder pulled the plug, said, you know, we terminating you now because we gave you two extensions. You still can't close. We got to move on. So they resold the property for just over a million dollars. The original price was a million and a half, and now they sold it, resold it for a million. So it's $500,000 less. So uh, builder got summary judgment for $331,000, which was the difference between the original price and the resale price plus carrying costs that, you know, they awarded that as well, less a credit that was given to the original buyer because they had paid $136,000 in total deposits at that time. So they were already, you know, so that was already covered. So this is just to give them the difference in the amount. So basically the judge gave them everything. Okay. Said you're okay. We're okay for you to sell it for a million and we're going to award you the difference. You keep all the deposits that have been paid, all the monies for upgrades, and we're giving you an, an additional $330,000 to cover the difference in price so that the builder, you know, is, is, is held, uh, it, it gets all their money back. Okay. So that's a pretty tough lesson for a buyer to learn, but the builder was in the right and the buyer wasn't. And, you know, the, so they appealed it and tried to make, you know, allegations that, you know, the judge made mistakes. They didn't, the respondent didn't mitigate. And we've talked about that before, that that was the big issue here. Did the, did the builder do everything they could have to sell it for a maximum price and mitigate the damages or reduce the damages? Okay. And at the end of the day, they, the judge found in the court of appeals said, no, they, they did it. That was the market they were selling in. It was just the market changed. So the fact they got a $500,000 less was reasonable in the circumstances and they, and they did meet the test of mitigating their damages and too bad. So sad for this buyer. Yeah. I, I remember our podcast with Sarah Ernstkin when uh, Sarah mentioned that there really is no defense when the buyer fails to close other than the seller has a responsibility to mitigate all their damages. So as long right. as they can demonstrate that, you know, uh, they put the property promptly on the market, it was properly advertised, it was on MLS, um, you know, they did whatever they can to get the best price. And, and I think the question of how quickly the property goes back on the market is monumentally important, right? Because I think that, you know, the builder waits three months to see, hey, what is the buyer doing and doesn't put the property on the market and the and market drops. And I think the buyer has a little bit of a case saying, well, listen, you know, the seller contributed to the lower price by not acting quickly enough and mitigating those, uh, those damages soon enough. But I think in this case, what this shows us is that it's a very straightforward process. You know, there isn't a lot of defense for 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 the buyer. I'm I'm happy to see that you know summary judgment was used initially, and you know the courts didn't see the um, um, the need to go through a lengthy trial process. And then the court of appeal upheld uh, the 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 summary judgment and 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 found that uh, you know the dismiss the uh, uh, the case was dismissed and and they didn't find sufficient um areas to to really reopen and, and relook at this so i mean i mean i think it sends a really strong message to our marketplace that you know these contracts are fully enforceable you know that the buyer has to close them 
that everything we ever talk about, David, in all our podcasts, you know, it, it kind of gets reinforced by by the court saying, yep, this is exactly how it is. The, the rules are there to be followed. If you enter into an agreement of purchase and sale that is firm, it is binding on you. You have to complete it. You have to perform it. And, and you know, buyers need to be very careful in this changing environment of, of, of what they commit to. Yeah. And, and we talked about this this principle of mitigation of damages when we talked about the uh, selling properties under power of sale in our recent uh, episodes as well, because it's the same thing. The lender, when there's a default, the lender can sell the property in that market. The lender doesn't have to wait for a better market. The, the lender can sell it in that market as long as they take reasonable steps to sell it. And they, then they meet the test of mitigating their damages. And, and the same thing here, the builder doesn't have to wait for a better market. Or, or to see if there is one, they can sell it in whatever market they're in for the a reason, as long as they, they, they make reasonable efforts to mitigate their damages, then they pass the test. And that's what happened here. Now, in this case, you know, there was two extensions granted. In hindsight, the buyer may have been better off, you know, not getting those extensions. Maybe the market would have been better, probably would have been when the, when the original default happened, if they just would have sold it right then, maybe they would have got more money. But, you know, they were still scrambling and trying to get it. In the meantime, they had two extensions and they waited. But then when they're out, you know, that's the market they're in. They expose it to the market. The best they could do is get a million dollars. So that's a $500,000 difference. It's significant, but that's that's it. So, but like you said, you know, cases like this come up and they, get, and they go through the system and it's a message to everybody reinforcing the principles that we know and believe. So there's nothing really new here. It's saying, okay, you, you can sell the property as long as you take reasonable steps to mitigate, go to it. And too bad for the buyer here. Yeah. And David, of course, if the builder didn't accept a million and sixty thousand dollars and they just opted to put this property back in their inventory and not actually complete a sale on this particular unit, then there would be uh, very little damages here. And, uh, you know, other than forfeiting the deposit, um, the no extra damages would have been awarded to uh, to the builder. Well, at some point, the property is going to be sold. So what the builder would have done is they would have said, you know, you're in default. We're keeping your deposits. That's clear. Uh, but we're reserving our right to claim for damages. And then it's a question of when they go to the market. So if, if they actually delay to go to the market because they're trying to wait for a better market or, or whatever that might uh, it, it might screw up their, whether they took reasonable steps to mitigate their damages, because if the market gets worse because of their delay, that gives an argument for the buyer says, well, why didn't you put it on the market right away? You could have got, you, you could have got a million two for it, but you waited and the market went down and now you only got a million. So, so there's a possible defense that could be opened up. So usually builders will want to just do it right away and not open up that type of thing because no one has a real crystal ball. Is the market going to go up or is the market going to go down? But no one can question if, you, you know, as soon as the default happens and you expose it to the market right then, then there's really no argument that can be raised by a buyer. Like they've got no defenses to this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, as a professionals or as, as, as a realtor really navigating um, the market with, with your buyers, I think it's really, really important that, 
the realtor understands that and, and is able to communicate that to, to his clients and, and give them proper advice and make sure that everything is lined up before you enter into that agreement of purchase and sale. Because once you do, you know, you're really locked in and, and you're obligated to close that transaction. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I mentioned like, you know, the deposits being gone is like, you know, a given, you know, there's certain take that position. The, the second case that we wanted to, to point out sort of deals with the, with the deposit issue. And, you know, does a buyer ever have the right to get back those deposit monies, a defaulting buyer? And there is a concept of, of applying for relief of forfeiture of the deposits, which if you meet, you know, certain factual circumstances, you might be able to try and claw it back, but it's a really difficult test. So if there's a, a clear default on the part of a buyer, they're generally never going to get their deposit monies back. And it's a question of what other exposure is there to them for, for further damages over and above the deposits. So maybe we should talk about the second one a little bit. Sure. And David, from my understanding, forfeiting the deposit, those, those are uh, rules are enshrined in common law. English common law, right? So English yeah. common law basically states, and common law is defined by, you know, uh, cases going through the court systems through um, a long period of time and how the courts have really consistently ruled in those cases. It's not really a written law anywhere. It's really how the courts have really looked at each and every single one of those uh, cases and ruled over a long period of time. Yes, and, you know, they're 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 interpreting you know basic principles of contract law etc in doing that but when you're when you're when a judge can hear a case it's it's what the law is what the black and white law is and their interpretation of that law but then there's always equitable principles too that they take into consideration like you know if we apply the law strictly is, is there an inherent unfairness somewhere and if there is, then maybe we should, a judge has some leeway to do something about that instead of just following the two, you know, the absolute black and white interpretation of it. So when, so the, when the equities get involved and they they think there's an element of unfairness, then the judge can act on it. So, and that's sort of what this second case talks about, because here there was a um, purchase price of a, a million one fifty and a $40,000 deposit. And the buyer couldn't get financing. And we have lots of people that we're dealing with every day these days, David, you and I, that are struggling to get their financing, even when they thought they had pre-approval, et cetera. So they, they can't close. The, the parties try to negotiate a second agreement at a, at a higher purchase price with a, with a deposit. And, um, you know, and that ended up not going through. The agreement didn't go through. And, um, and they abandoned that. So then it came to, you know, so now the, the buyer has defaulted. The, the seller is retaining the, the uh, deposit. They're saying it's been forfeited. And you can forfeit that deposit without proving your damages. Like that's what the law is. You can just keep, that's the whole purpose of a deposit. It's not you give me a deposit and I can keep it only if I prove that I've suffered a loss from it. It's, it's part of basic contract principles. I'm tying up the property. I'm taking it off the market by giving a deposit. So if I, if I don't close, I forfeit that deposit. That's the price I'm paying to tie up that property. Otherwise it just, you know, if you just default it and they say, okay, I, I can't close, give me back the deposit money. Then what's the purpose of it? So the yeah. purpose is it has to be at law forfeited. Okay. So 
you can apply for relief of forfeiture if you there's there's sort of two tests for it. whether the deposit was out of proportion to the damages that would have been suffered and whether it be unconscionable to retain the deposit. So if you meet those tests, you might be able to get something back. But here there was just a $40,000 deposit. Right. If, and I was just going to say, David, like we, we see like in, in 2017 and when the market was going crazy, we saw uh, extraordinary high deposits, you know, on a million dollars, we saw $200,000, $300,000 deposits in some cases. So um, if those buyers failed to close, assuming that, you know, the damages weren't as high as two or 300,000, uh, in theory, they could have applied for under this principle saying that, hey, you know, it's, it's really uh, unfair to, to take this whole deposit. It's really unjustable and it's unequitable. Um, and, and the courts might have applied uh, some sort of relief to that. Right, exactly. So in this case, because the deposits were, were low, you know, it, it doesn't take much to, to suffer $40,000 worth of damages. Like it really isn't very hard to do that. You know, you've got a time difference when you're reselling the property, you've got commissions to pay, you got extra legal fees to pay, you're carrying the property, right. property taxes, insurance. To pack your house up twice and unpack your house storage twice. Storage costs. Yeah, like it's really not difficult. But like you said, let's say this was a, you know, a $400,000 deposit on a million to property or something like that you know and maybe the damages if you add them all up you know would be a hundred thousand dollars or 150 or maybe two hundred thousand but then it opens up that argument for them to, for the vendor to keep the full deposit if it was a four hundred thousand deposit now it might be okay there's an it, there's there's something unreasonable about that it really creates a windfall for the seller because they couldn't possibly suffer that much in damages so they're made whole so the judge is always going to help keep that non-defaulting seller whole, make sure they're suffering no loss. Sometimes they'll give them some extra money for all their time and effort, make sure they're covered for the fact that, that this, you know, maybe there was a different market change. You can argue that. Sometimes you can, you can argue that whole 400,000 in that fact would be fair because the market dropped so much that when the property does get resold, there might be this big damage incurred, right? But it's, but in this case, you know, there was nothing disproportionate about the deposit. It was a low deposit and they basically had no chance to, to get it back because they didn't meet those tests. So, you know, the deposit wasn't disproportionate. There was no evidence of any inequality of bargaining power. And the judges, you know, too bad we're not helping you out in this circumstance. But it reinforces the principle that under certain fact situations, you can try and claw back and get some of that deposit back. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think the lesson here is uh, deposits are really important. The amount of the deposit is really important. And, you know, if, if you're the seller, you're going to try to get the absolute uh, biggest deposit you can to ensure that the transaction closes. But if the deposit is unreasonable in terms of uh, the percentage uh, of the purchase price, then there might be a situation where the buyer would have to apply for relief to a court system. And, and the court would use those two principles to determine whether, um, you know, to give some of that deposit back to, to, uh, to the buyer. Yeah. And, and both these cases both point out to, you know, situations too, where the, the buyer couldn't close and they negotiated extensions. Okay, and in the first one that we talked about, you know, they paid additional deposits as part of each extension. In the second one, they were negotiating 
you know, to, to, to redo it. And, and they would have required a further deposit too. And, and I'm always a big proponent of that when we're in that situation. Cause I always think that, that a, a defaulting buyer looking for an extension should be prepared to put more deposit money down yeah. for tying up the properties sooner. And usually there is some element, especially when there's, you know, low depositor, because, you know, like even if they're financing the property, they might be financing up to, you know, 70% or something. So there's still that 30% that they should have available. And some of that was the original deposit and the rest of it will be their additional down payment on closing. Usually they have some ability to put more money in, but it's an, ind an indicator too, when you ask for that, okay, you want an extension, put, put some more money in. It's an indicator how serious the buyer really is and what, how successful they really think they're going to be in eventually closing this transaction. And if they say, no, we can't, and we, and we don't, that's then sometimes the seller, you're better off saying, okay, forget it. Like we're just, we're not playing and we're going to, you know, we're going to go back to the market. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, David. I think the seller is the injured party at that point. You know, there was a date that, you know, that date was not arbitrary. It was agreed by both parties. It was a date that both parties were working towards. And, and it's a date that the seller is relying on. And if the buyer can't meet that date and wants to change that date and and really shake that up, that fundamental understanding and, and agreement that happened at the beginning, then I think if they can't put money behind um you know, the new deadline and the new agreement, then they're not serious about doing whatever they can in their power to meet that new obligation. I think that sends a really strong signal to the seller. Um, and I, I completely agree at that point, I would be putting the property back on the market. Um, I, I think that's where a lot of the arguments can be that that's where the mitigation has to start by the seller. And of course, if the buyer is able to come up with those funds and is able to arrange uh, financing, they can always come back with a firm offer, with a new closing date, with 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 a little bit of a higher deposit, and and you know the seller at that point would uh, uh, be encouraged to to go ahead and work with that new offer that's that's coming in, uh, which would negate the old situation and hopefully um, cause a, a positive transaction to close. Yeah, and and you know you know David, we're dealing with these issues all the time, and sometimes we're on the on the seller side and sometimes we're on the buyer's side and I, and I don't really change what I'm trying to do. Cause I know what I'm looking, when I'm acting for a seller, I want to, I want some evidence. If, if they want an extension, I want some evidence that they have an ability to close on that new extension date. So do you have a mortgage commitment? Can you show me your mortgage commitment that says, yes, if, you know, if we extend for a week or two weeks, you have an ability to close because you're funded. And if you're not in a situation to do that, because you're still shopping around for it, then for sure we want additional deposit monies put in because you're just buying some additional time. And if I'm on the buyer's defaulting buyer side of these things, you know, I I respect those arguments as well. And that's what I'm I'm telling my client before the seller's even asking for it. I'm saying this is what they should be asking. I'm not sure if they're going to, but this is what they should be asking because. You know, are we are we asking for a week? We're asking for two, but how are we going to show them that we have an ability to close? Because if we can't show them that, they're not likely to grant it, or they're going to grant you a shorter period of time or something, or they're going to ask for you to put more money in. And if you're going to put more money in, you better have some confidence you're going to be able to close because you're just throwing in good money after bad money, and uh, it's it's not always the the advisable thing. So those are important things to consider. 
I, I couldn't agree more, David. And, and you know, just before uh, jumping on this podcast, I was watching a little bit of Brian Buffini. Uh, he does his bold predictions once a year, and in December, um, you know, he uh, he put out a really great webinar. And one of his predictions is that you know we're going to see more transaction fa- transactions failing to close. And, you know, he's been in this business for, for a really long time. He built, uh, you know, probably one of the most successful coaching companies in the industry. And uh, he basically said that a lot of this 90% of the transactions not closing are attributing to the realtors doing a bad job advising their clients. And I, I don't know if I agree or disagree, but I think the realtor plays a pivotal role. In, in these transactions coming together and closing and, and really working smoothly, right? So it, it starts with the realtors, you know, um, at the end of the day, if they give good advice, if they give the right guidance, if they, you know, involve the right professionals on the mortgage side, on the legal side, um, on the home inspection side, um, all this is designed to cradle and, and protect their clients, Right. But if the realtor rushes through the transaction, gives the client bad advice, uh, doesn't protect their interests, doesn't put in a home inspection condition, uh, doesn't go through the mortgage uh, pre-qualifications properly with their clients, doesn't explain, hey, you got this mortgage pre-qualification. Don't go out there and buy a new yacht. Don't go out there and buy you know, a cottage. Don't go out there and buy a new car because it's going to affect your 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 credit score and your ability to obtain this financing and, and uh, to close this transaction. So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, but I think it does start with the uh, real estate professional and making sure they have the right support system around their clients to be able to guide them through this properly. And, and, and look, yeah. the courts have said that, you know, it, it's a big deal. Once you enter into a firm agreement of purchase and sale, you need to close. Yeah, and and you're right. And if you're on the buyer's side, like I couldn't agree with you more. You're a buyer's agent. You've got to, you know, you're you're a financial advisor in in a lot of ways because this is their biggest purchase that your clients can be making, and you got to make sure they can afford what they're getting into. And and we've talked about it on, on a number of podcasts that if you're on the seller's side, you should you shouldn't just be taking the best price. It's not best price is the best deal for your seller client, uh, especially when you have more than one offer. It's you got to look to see who the buyer is and get as much information on the buyer and the buyer's agent and where they're getting their financing from. And, you know, is the agent a reliable person, um, you know, bringing you that, that buyer? Because it's not just accepting the best price. It's do they have an ability to close? Because if they don't have an ability to close, you're better off not accepting their offer and take somebody that's offering $20,000 less, but has an ability to close and close on time because you'll be ahead of the game that way. Then if you you start playing the game with a with a, a sketchy buyer that was, you know, that was paying top dollar, offering top dollar, but doesn't have the ability to close and then needs extensions and then still may not close. And eventually you might pull the plug and you go back to the market, but you lost a couple other buyers that could have closed and you would have been done with it. Right. So I'm always, if you're an agent on the seller side, you got to do your homework about who your buyers are and who the buyer's agent is. And, and I've heard that from agents. Some of you know, why'd you accept this offer? Because I know the agent. Yep. 
yeah, and the agent down. is the agent wouldn't bring this buyer to this property without doing their homework and making sure the buyer can has their financing and they're going to close. Yeah, and David, I mean, that leads us to a different conversation. You know, brands matter and reputation matters in the marketplace in a slower market, right? So, you know, if you're going to put a discount brand sign on your front lawn, think about what message you're sending to every single buyer that walks through your door. You know, and, and think about the representation that you're going to get in protecting your biggest light transaction. A lot of the times, real estate is everybody's biggest transaction that they do in, in, in their hand, in their life, right? And, and what right. message are you sending to every buyer uh, walking into the door? Yeah. Right? So uh, it, it matters. It makes a big di difference. And, you know, especially in these tough, tough times, you know, not every single professional is built the same way. Absolutely. And, um, the you know, the importance of agents... And, and good agents and then and then lawyers and good lawyers too in these times in difficult times um, our services are valued way more than in a in a free-flowing market when there's lots of supply out there and transactions are happening and they're closing and everybody's getting their financing okay um, a lot of agents can deal in that market a lot of lawyers can deal in that market but when it becomes a tough market, that's when you really find out how good your agent is and how good your lawyer is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's important to, to have these discussions too. And, and right now we're in, we're in a tough market. We've been there for, it's been, it's been a while already and it's going to continue. Hopefully, you know, like I've been feeling a little bit, even the last few days, uh, a, a bit of an uptick in, in the market. I think there's a few more transactions starting to trickle in a little bit of a faster pace. So, you know, and now we're already, you know, getting into you know the second half of in the second half of February, and this is when it usually starts to pick up. You know, as we're getting closings that are, you know, they're they're for April and and May, they're starting to trickle in. So, like every year, the spring market will produce more than you know than what we saw in December, January, February. You know, it's going to pick up. It's already I'm already starting to feel it a little bit. Whether that's going to be a great market in the spring, who knows? But it's going to improve for sure. And yeah, maybe that'll take some of the pressure, but, but people still need their financing. There's still issues out there. Well, that was going to be my message to the market. It's great to see an uptick in activity. Like we're seeing multiple offers on certain properties. We're seeing buyers come out and, and transact, right? But the big thing that we're looking for is the ability to close, right? These buyers are being um, stress test for their mortgage at, you know, over 7% in some cases, um, it, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, not everybody has the financial capacity to carry these high prices at, at, at those rates. So, um, you know, if you are a real estate professional, don't be afraid to ask questions, you know, ask qualifying questions, really dig in and take your time. There's no rush here. You know, you don't have to rush to accept that offer in the first 15 minutes that it, it arrives, you know, do an old fashioned in-person offer presentation ask questions, ask for the mortgage pre-qualification. Who was your mortgage broker? Are you going through a B lender? Are you going through a C lender? Are you getting private financing? Are you going through an A lender? 
you know, what's your financial situation? When did you buy your last house? How, how big was your mortgage in the last house? How many brand new cars have you bought in the last six months? I'd be asking all these questions because I think the ability to close is the, is the most important factor, more important than purchase price, more important than closing date, more important than anything. Do you have the ability to bring this transaction to a successful and fruitful closing uh, when that closing date comes? I think that's the guiding principle that every uh, professional should be using as their North Star when, when having all these conversations right now. Yeah, and, and most sellers are selling a property to buy another property. You know, other than the, the ones that are in the retirement era or something like that. But, but a lot of times it's a sale in order to be able to buy. So don't jeopardize your purchase by not doing everything you can to make sure that your sale is going to close because you've got a qualified buyer uh, to buy that property. So, um, you know, you always got to keep that in mind too. Otherwise, you're screwing up two transactions yeah. with it. So, you know, and that's what we're talking about, you know, most homeowners, but we want to, I know we want to switch gears a little bit to get into the third category. And I know this is a, you know, a topic well, close to your heart. I don't we're going to have time. I, I have a hard stop uh, right okay. now uh, at 10 a.m., but I, I know we have a couple more topics lined up. So maybe we can do a part two of this podcast next week and get into some uh, some more fun situations and, and take our time and, and dive a little bit deeper and uh, keep uh, keep bringing value to our audience. Okay, so we'll do that because part of what we're going to talk next time is it's a little bit on the investment side of real estate and some some case law that came out and, and dealing with some of the the new rules that came into into play in January. So uh, there's already decisions on that. So I think that maybe we'll just lead that into uh, into a, our next session, our next episode, or. Or, or an upcoming episode, and we'll get into that because I think that'll be an interesting discussion too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, guys, join us next time because we're, we're talking about v brand new regulations that came into effect on January 1st, 2023. And we're already seeing some, some case uh, court cases dealing with those new regulations. So, um, you know, just continue to provide value and keep educating you guys just so you guys are in the know and you know exactly what's happening out there. So thanks for joining us this week. And we'll see everybody next week on the Dave and David on Real Estate Podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody.